welcome to the At Peace Parents podcast. I'm Casey, and I'm here to empower you in your decision-making as a parent of a demand-avoidant child. My goal is to share insights that will generate aha moments and support your connection with your child. I'm a mom of two amazing little boys, one of whom is PDA, and I've worked with hundreds of parents just like you to teach them how to lead their child out of burnout and find the clarity, peace, and sense of community they need. Is my child autistic with demand avoidance or is my child PDA autistic? This is a great question. It's one I get a lot from parents. And as part of the Clarity Workshop series with parents interested in enrolling in the Paradigm Shift program, I'm going to provide a free training on this topic. So again, the question is, is my child autistic with demand avoidance or is my child or teen PDA autistic? So we're gonna talk about six things pertaining to this question. Hi everybody, it's good to see you. We're gonna talk about the lens through which we view our children and the root cause of behaviors, that's one. Two, we're gonna talk about the fact that things are not always binary. We're gonna talk about patterns I've observed among the hundreds of PDA children and teens whose families I've worked with. Then I'm going to talk about patterns among the parents themselves that I've observed with the hundreds of parents that I've worked with. Then we're going to talk about why an experimental approach is necessary and useful as a parent for PDA children and teens. And then we will wrap up with a Q&A for you guys, which is going to be focused on two things, clarity around this question and specific questions about the paradigm shift program to help you determine if that's the right next step for your family which will be opening enrollment will be opening for the waitlist on wednesday wednesday august 9th okay so let's get started all right <clears throat> i'm going to start with a story about my own son to help you guys get clarity on the concept of a lens and a root cause so when my son was in burnout and when we had just moved to Michigan from Washington, D.C., I was incredibly, incredibly confused as a parent. And I was very frustrated by this because I had done all my Excel spreadsheets. I had done what I thought I needed to do with the research. I was leveraging all my doctoral level training to try and read the peer review articles on all the different things like sensory, autism conduct disorder, all the things, which I had done early in his life as well when he was an infant. I spent lots of time reading about colic and prevalence and all that. And when I moved to Michigan, I was still ultimately very confused. And I'll give you a scenario to illustrate this. So in the mornings to go to his daycare, which he seemed to enjoy when he was there, although everybody, he was masking at the time, which I didn't understand. Um, I was employing all of these supports that at their root had a different root cause as the logic. Okay, so for example, I was interpreting the fact that when it was time to go to school, he was running from me, hiding under chairs, he was climbing on the backs of couches, he would run from me inside of our car, he would unbuckle himself. He would refuse to put his shoes on. He would run up the stairs, hide under the bed, um, go on windowsills, try and get out the front door. Okay, so definite flight response, but I was not viewing it through that lens. 
what I was viewing it as was behavioral, social communication issue, executive functioning differences, and sensory differences, okay? Because those are often the first lenses that professionals give us or that the literature delivers to us, right? So what was I doing to support my child through this lens? So first, through the sensory lens, I was trying to think through, okay, the root cause is that he doesn't like the tags on his shirts. He doesn't like, you know, the seams on his underwear or his socks. So I need to accommodate that so that there's no resistance. Okay, so that was the sensory lens. The other thing I was doing at the request of many therapists and well-meaning practitioners was I was doing a lot of autism supports, more traditional autism supports. So I had developed all of these beautiful laminated pictures that I could move around. I had the first then statements. I had the charts to try and walk him through the difficult transition. The underlying assumption of the root cause then in his resistance was based on the logic of non-PDA autism, which is social communication differences. Like I need to communicate with him differently so he understands the steps to get out the door and rigidity around transitions. So these were the tools, okay? It doesn't mean they're wrong by any means, but the lenses through which I was looking at things were like this. First social communication, then sensory, and there was nothing about autonomy or nervous system, okay? So for many of you who have, and it wasn't working, obviously. <laughs> it was not working at all. It was escalating things because the root cause was actually his perception of me trying to make him walk through these supports of like, okay, now it's time to do the laminated chart. What does this part of his brain perceive, the limbic system? It's perceiving, Oh my gosh, I'm in danger. My body's going to die. And the nervous system goes off and he goes into flight, which is why he's on the back of couches and hiding under the bed. If we look at it through a different lens of defiance, that's a different root cause. Okay. But what's actually happening with that? But I didn't know that. Okay. And this is not to say that social communication and sensory are not important to help my son. They are. These are dimensions of his brain wiring. But what I teach parents, and I hope will be helpful to you, whether or not you join the program, is that we have to switch the lens prioritization, okay? So like if your child has been diagnosed with autism and you don't know if the resistance is based on sensory or social communication, often you have this question because what you're doing isn't really working, right? And so what we can do is we can flip the lens and think through, okay, what if I put autonomy first? the perception of autonomy and equality first and look at everything through that lens first and then below that we have sensory experience and social communication which will fluctuate those needs depending on how activated the nervous system is okay and so through that different lens we're no longer focusing on the solutions being laminated charts first then statements strict routines sensory accommodations etc those are accommodations that may work if the child has a regulated nervous system, but the feature of PDA autistic children is that that first lens will override all other lenses. Okay, so the first thing we want to do 
as we're trying to answer those questions as parents is take our autonomy and equality lenses and always put them on first. Okay, so the question I would reflect back to you is, does it help to understand your particular child through this lens? Does their behavior make more sense? If we're first looking at the question, is their limbic system interpreting and perceiving a loss of autonomy or equality to you, sometimes through the application of the tools that are meant to help autism or social communication, which is often perceived as one and the same, does it help you gain clarity on the deep why and what might help your child to think through this different lens? And if the answer is yes, then that is your first tiny step towards more clarity on potentially your child being PDA, okay? I hope this is resonating for you guys. The second is that it's not binary, okay? And I wanna use another story to illustrate this with my other son, William. So I have two sons. My PDA son, Cooper, is eight and a half, going on nine, and William is four and a half. And William, I do not know what his neurotype is. <laughs> There's lots of variables going on. He has grown up in a PDA home and with an externalized threat response, so he has anxiety and some trauma responses sometimes, but he also has his own experiences, right? He has his sensory differences that are very obvious and these play out in lots of different ways. And he does have a strong drive for autonomy. However, his drive for autonomy does not override all of his other survival instincts. How do I know this? Because I've collected the data in my own home, which is like the whole purpose of this page and my programs, et cetera, is to like empower you to see what's right in front of you. The example is from last night. Last night, my younger son, William, does not like to wash his hair. It's a difficult sensory experience. It's been like this since he was a baby, but his trajectory with this basic need has been very different. Expo like very gentle exposure therapy with like starting to do baths in a, a basin in the kitchen with like toys and just starting to have him touch it and stuff like that gradual exposure approach worked with him right he finally started bathing with a pda child even slight exposure if they're perceiving threat will actually put them into a trauma response so that's a difference right with my son last night william I pushed him through his own dysregulation because he needed to get his he needed to get his hair washed right he washes it once a week. This is not something I like to do, but I know that the cost to his nervous system, even though he has avoidance and a, and, and a strong drive for autonomy is not going to causally link to him not sleeping eating toileting anymore having regressions like he gets activated but then he comes down and it doesn't accumulate in his system and so i'm not saying william is autistic but because i don't know his neurotype i'm just using a lot of the same approaches but the difference between those moments of like if i push my pda son this will eventually have a causal link to him accessing eating his metabolism because it will activate his nervous system um, he'll have diarrhea he will not be able to sleep and all of these things okay so there's a difference between 
avoidance and a strong drive for autonomy, which many autistic children have, I think many neurodivergent children have, and the question of whether this will systematically override other survival instincts like eating, like toileting independently, like sleeping, either in the moment or in accumulation. So that's an illustration to show you that it's not binary, right? Like if your child has demand avoidance and your child has a strong drive for autonomy, the accommodations are gonna help them. But your cost benefit decision-making is gonna be a little bit different, right? As a parent, for me, the cost of like gently pushing my, my younger son through washing his hair was worth the benefit of getting through it and us repairing afterwards and getting up to go to bed so he could sleep it was fine, right? It obviously activates my nervous system, but the cost wasn't, we're rupturing trust completely. I'm setting off a survival response in his body and now he won't be able to sleep tonight or next week, right? So there's that subtle difference. It's not binary. And while the accommodations, the 12 most effective accommodations, I think can be helpful for any child, <laughs> I would say the cost benefit decision making as a parent is slightly different for a PDA child versus a non PDA child autistic or not. Which is fine it's just the programs I design and the, and the workshops and everything are designed specifically for the cost benefit that parents of PDA children and teens are facing which really is that causal link between cumulative nervous system activation and the disabling nature of the neurotype. Okay, so let's get down to some more specifics. What are some patterns that we can look for among children and or teens who we're not sure if they're non-PDA autistic with demand avoidance or PDA autistic? Okay, so that first thing I mentioned was that survival drive for autonomy of in accumulation over time, is your child constantly activating and is nervous nervous system activation accumulating to the point where it's disabling? There are three things that I see that cause burnout in the population of PDA kids and teens, which is like really strict behavioral parenting, really <laughs> unaccommodated school environments, and behavioral approaches to therapy like ABA. Okay. So this seems kind of common sense, but if those approaches have actually helped your child, then they're not PDA, <laughs> potentially. And we need to be discerning as parents because they may be internalizing and masking the, the threat response that they're perceiving or they're feeling as a PDA, or, and then it will come out in their basic needs, okay? So we want to be really clear-eyed as parents of like, is it masking or when I employ more behavioral approaches to parenting, it actually makes things better. I imagine if you're here, that's not the case. Okay, so there's that first survival drive for autonomy, but we have to trust our own data. Okay, like I'm never going to tell a parent that the data that they're observing in their own home and their intuition is wrong. And I'm also not going to say that even if the approach is different than mine, right? This isn't philosophical. This is like a science-based approach to supporting these children's nervous systems. Okay, the second thing is what overrides what with your child? Does routine override novelty or novelty override new routine? 
And this is, again, not a binary question because a lot of, like my son needs the rhythms of certain routines, but then he will drop them because they, even if he decides on them, it will become an internal demand or an internally perceived loss of autonomy. So what you might see is there's a routine that's going consistently. They might have consented to it or even come up with it themselves, but then they drop it, right? So I'll give you another example with my two sons. When my younger, my older son who's PDA, when I'd read him books, I had to read three books every night and I had to three, sing three songs. So there was a rhythm and a routine. But within that, I had to make up new words to all the songs and all the books and had to change them and engage with novelty or my son would reject everything and become dysregulated versus my more linear thinking, more rigid, younger son who like literally wants to read the same book every night no matter what in the same order the same pages etc okay the next thing is with special interests you see the same thing reflected which is you know you might have a couple continuing interests that are consistent throughout the child or teen's life or iterations of them but with a pda or you might see an intense focus on one thing and then dropping it all together and then going to the next thing and dropping it all together so like first it's pokemon then it's minecraft then it's beyblades and then you buy all the things for pokemon and then they never want to see it again the same is true for eating right and this is why we joke that like <laughs> parents of pdaers can't buy in bulk because as soon as you do they're like we're done now, right? Because it becomes a demand or a perception of a loss of autonomy or equality. Okay, so from my perspective, this is a unique aspect of a PDA autistic brain where the need for novelty and the survival drive for autonomy is overriding the other autistic need for routine and, and similarity and, and predictability. Okay, it doesn't mean they're in contrast to one another, we're just looking at which is prioritized and which lens we're looking through. Okay, so the next one is directly from the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, the fifth edition, which is what practitioners here in the United States and often abroad use to diagnose autism. So one of the two main features is restrict, restricted and repetitive interests. So this is what I, sort of meant by special interests or monotropic focus, if we want to use a more accurate language. So often when we think of this, we're like, well, A, my kid changes things all the time, so it's not really restricted and repetitive, but also like they're not that into trains or they're not into collecting things or objects. They might be, but when we look at it through the lens of the fact that restricted and repetitive interests can be social in nature and often are for PDAers, then we realize actually there is a restricted and repetitive interest because maybe it's a character from a show, maybe it's a role or an animal or a person, a friend, an individual, a therapist, right? So often what you see is a restricted or repetitive interest in a particular child, another child, right? Where they're like, okay, I'm going to go to school because this one kid is there and they're my focus or my fixed interest. But if we look at this through an older conceptualization, more traditional conceptualization of autism, we're never going to notice that because 
the conventional wisdom on autism, which is outdated, is like they're not, there's no social interest, which is inaccurate as we know. Okay, but that's, I hope that tidbit is also helpful for all of you who are trying to get an autism diagnosis and may know your kid is PDA because you can frame social interests that you observe that are more restricted and repetitive as this, as, as fitting into the DSM-5, because we don't want to shoot ourselves in the foot, even if structures and systems and institutions aren't designed for us. Okay, and then the last one, which I will have an asterisk about, but I think it's very helpful. Again, these are non-scientific, but very simplified things that I have found help parents discern is, is the child able to play independently or not? And often parents who have autistic children, like the child will engage in their own interests and toys on their own, whereas especially when a PDA child has a lot of cumulative nervous system activation, often in the time that you're considering it, they can't do anything without you by their side because of that lack of nervous system safety. It all relates back to the nervous system, both needing like the perception of a loss of autonomy and equality, which makes you think, oh, they need independence, but then you give it to them and they won't do anything for themselves. That's because they need those signals of nervous system safety at the root of this neurotype, okay? okay the caveat is, is that internalized expressions of PDAers often in their childhood were able to play more independently. And of course we need to speak with, and I have with the families that I work with in the privacy or coaching containers and programs that they felt the intern as children felt the internalized activation and may have equalized against self, but nobody saw that they were in distress because they were internalizing that activation. So it appeared that they could play independently. So those are the patterns that you see in children and teens, just to like help you as a parent answer this question. And then here are the, pa the patterns among parents that I see, which I hope will also get you clarity on this question, which I'm just going to remind everyone the question is, is my child autistic with demand avoidance or PDA autistic? Okay, so the patterns I've witnessed among parents, but also experienced myself are the following. Um, first, feeling completely alone, even in autistic spaces. <laughs> so I'll give you an example. Um, one of my son's stickiest basic needs is eating. His cumulative nervous system activation from constantly perceiving threat builds in his system and disables him from eating, okay? That's his causal mechanism as a PDA child. However, when I went to support groups for, for parents of autistic children who also struggled to eat, I felt completely out of place, okay? And that this might not be PC, but I'm just going to tell you what I was thinking. I was like, all these kids, even if they can't, you know, they're non-speaking or maybe have less social communication capacity as my son, they're all much more regulated than my son and are playing independently while the parents are in this support group where, like, there's no way on God's green earth I could have brought him, right? Because he would have just been constantly interrupting me and totally dysregulated to the point that we're having panic attacks. Okay, so I first was like, 
okay, I'm in the wrong place here also because everyone's talking about going through the same program at the university, which is totally behaviorally based and, and got their child from a feeding tube to now eating all these foods that my son totally rejects and can't. And I was like, okay, what is happening? Like I, my, my son is autistic. He has sensory issues and he struggles to eat, but I feel completely out of place. Like we're not having the same experience. And so this is also very common for parents of PDAers. And from my experience working with parents who are PDA identifying, it's also an experience they might have in the autistic community, right? Because it's like a different experience <laughs> um, as adults. So this sort of taps into the second part of it, which is like nobody under seems to understand you, right? Like, so most of the time parents of PDA children feel this deep sense of isolation of being gaslit and nobody understands how to help them. And often, not always, parents who have children who are more typically presenting autistic fit into a category that medical systems, therapy systems, educational systems understand, okay? So there's not, it's not to discount the difficulty of raising a child with high needs or neurodiver neurodivergent challenges. It is just to say it is a different degree of isolation and lack of understanding that parents of PDA children and teens experience, okay? And this is like my data from parents. <laughs> and it's a biased sample, but it's a large end sample, okay? So two more things. The third thing that parents won't admit or post on social media, but I've heard so many times and I've thought myself that I'm gonna share with you. If you are thinking to yourself secretly that you wish your child was more typically autistic because then people would understand how to help you and the tools would work, potentially your child is PDA <laughs> because I've had that thought, many parents have had that thought, and, and at its root, it's just like you want someone to understand you and your child. And like often when there's a more typical presentation or expression of autism, people understand it. Right? They're like, oh, social communication diff difficulties. Like, yes, we, we have the tools at the school to deal with this, but it's a totally different root cause for what's disabling your child. And again, it's not binary. You can have two things going on at once, but this is generally a pattern I've noticed. And then finally, for the question, is my child autistic with demand avoidance or PDA autistic? The question would be, is a behavioral approach working for you, right? And this doesn't necessarily answer the question of like neurotype, but I tend to think of things in causal mechanisms rather than labels, even though I do care about getting PDA into the next DSM or some DSM, which is why I'm doing research with the University of Michigan. But like in terms of helping parents, what matters is what helps your family. What matters is what helps your child be well, right? So if behavioral approaches are working, quote, in terms of compliance, but you see that your child's nervous system activation or that they're constantly in fight, flight, freeze when they're around safe people and not at ABA or school or grandparents or therapists, they're completely in fight, flight, freeze then it actually isn't working, 
right? Long-term what's happening is that they're moving towards burnout, just being honest. Second, if you're losing your connection with them, it doesn't matter if they're complying with like, you know, whatever they're being trained to do because ultimately connection and trust is your long-term currency that will change your child's life and your life with a PDA child. And then third, and this is super important, you might think that your child's medical issues like encapresis or, you know, reflex anoxic seizures or, you know, severe digestive issues or their non 24 hour sleep cycle or their toileting regression when they're seven that they have to go in the bathtub or use a diaper after they've been potty trained like that is not separate from what they're doing in a behavioral or compliance based setting. It's easy to silo them because you're like, well, that's a medical issue and they're compliant <laughs> in these therapies. But what's actually happening is they're internalizing the threat response and that is activating the nervous system and accumulating to the point where it's causing it to impact basic needs. And this is the causality that is so important to understand. And it, in my opinion, is at the root of what makes this a nervous system disability and not a behavioral issue okay and this is true for adults as well it's not just kids and they don't grow out of it okay so finally before we get to the q a sometimes we don't know okay sometimes we don't know what our child's neurotype is and frankly the categories were developed by humans who are imperfect and they don't necessarily capture all the nuance and so what we really want to do is approach our children objectively and with an experimental mindset, which also will help with self-compassion for yourself, which just means develop a hypothesis, okay? So like, if you're here and you're, you're wondering, is my child non-PDA autistic or PDA autistic? And you work through all the conventional lenses, behavioral, social communication support, sensory, all the things, and your child doesn't seem to be thriving, then it's an opportunity to develop or test a new hypothesis, which is like, let's try on the autonomy, equality, and nervous system lens. And then we want to consistently practice accommodations designed around that root cause and collect data, right? And we want to do it consistently with support. We want to be objective and collect data and determine after a longer time horizon, oh, actually, my kid's doing better, right? They might not be complying, but their basic needs are better, their connection with me is better, and their fight flight or meltdowns has dramatically decreased, the violence has decreased, and you're seeing it come down. This is a long-term approach. The opportunity for you to do this, you can absolutely DIY it. I design all of my free stuff, so like if you're if you're someone who can't afford the programs, like, please just use all the free materials and like, you can do this without me. Okay. But if you want and can afford a supportive community and that consistency to try a different lens and see objectively, like, okay, this is what it looks like when we prioritize this other lens. And then you can see clearly, oh, okay. We saw all these behaviors improve. We saw these basic needs improve, but actually it looks like they still have really severe anxiety. And maybe with a developmental pediatrician, 
we should address that. But when everything's mixed together, you don't know what's going on. And so sometimes we have to take the action to try another way, okay? And I wanna invite you guys into the Paradigm Shift program with me for the next cohort. It will be transformative for your family if you take action. So this is not a good idea to commit to at this point in your journey if you are not able to implement, okay? It's not a support group, but there will be support. There will be nervous system support and coaches in the community, and I will be there to support you as well. Thanks everyone for being here with me at the At Peace Parents podcast. This is your source for all things related to understanding, supporting, accommodating, and advocating for your PDA child. To go deeper on any of these topics, check out my course offerings and masterclasses at the website www.atpeaceparents.com. To completely transform the way you think about and relate to your child and to bring peace and stability to your home, join us for the next cohort of the Paradigm Shift program.